Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we are going to cover CPU coolers, fans versus water cooling, the age-old question, which one should you choose for your machine? Also, Wendy talks cameras. You've been asking for this. You want advice on the best cameras to get your hands on. Wendy is going to try to break that down for you in this episode. So if you've ever been interested in photography, this is the segment for you. Wendy is going to fill your brains on everything you need to know. Well, not everything. It's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of hardware addicts to get there, but it's going to fill your brains, get it started on camera equipment. So sit back, relax, and plug in because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. So let's find out what tech adventures they've been up to this week. Wendy, how have you fed your hardware addiction? Well, with a little bit of frustration this week, I've been having some issues with my internet. I contacted my internet company and they said it wasn't them. It was on my side. Of course. So I did a reset of my router and so far things have been running better, but it's probably time to go and go ahead and replace my router. I'm running a Netgear R7000 with WDDRT firmware on it. But in the past, over these last seven years that I've had this model, uh, maybe six, it's been in some places where it hasn't been taken care of the best. Some rooms that have gotten really hot. There's a ton of dust around here. And so I've started looking into routers. Man, that's frustrating. <laughs> well, that is very similar to what we're going to talk about later in that picking a router is like walking through a grocery aisle of picking a cereal because there are so many out there that are made and now there are so many different options. I'm curious what's caught your attention because the big thing right now, of course, is the Captain mesh Crunch. networks. Oh, come on. We're not talking about cereal, Michael. <laughs> you mentioned cereal and I grocery. Uh, it's not my fault. By the way, though, since you, you mentioned You got his it, mind on food. Captain Crunch is the greatest cereal. This is undebatable. It, I agree. It's fantastic. Yeah. Wendy? We, we just won't go there. All right, fine. But, but what routers <laughs> caught your attention? Well, for me, the biggest thing I'm looking at is making sure that it's compatible with the open source firmware for the routers. So I'm trying to decide if I'm going to stay with Netgear. I might go Linksys this time because they've got some really nice ones and about the same price range that are staying up to date with the latest firmware. Interesting. So I've had some really bad experience with Linksys over and over again over a series of several years and checking uh -oh. out different routers. And I haven't now I have not checked out their latest offerings maybe in the last I guess it's probably been two years since the last time I've played with the Linksys, but I've just had such bad experience. But they used to be my ultimate go to. Like I would go into a store, I'd look for the best Linksys that they had and I would set it up. Now, right now, I'm running the Netgear Orbi line, which is a mesh network. So essentially, you have little pods that you set up, Wi-Fi base stations around your house. And they have smaller ones and they have larger units, depending if you need Ethernet ports on the back or not. It works good. There are several different iterations of it. Of course, personally, from a privacy standpoint, I would stay away from any of the lines of Google and others that are making these routers out oh, yeah. there. 
Um, but Ubiquity is another one that Noah from that Noah show is also part of Destination Linux Network is a huge fan of. And I know a lot of people in the open source communities love Ubiquity. So that may be one that you want to keep your eye on because they also have some consumer line routers out there that they are releasing that people seem to really like and that you get a lot of control over for your home. So check out the Ubiquity. My current router is a TP-Link, but I have no idea at all about hardware. So don't listen to me. You should read the back and find out what model it is so we can all make fun of you in unison. It's a WDN 440 or something. something That's literally the worst router ever made. No, I don't know. That's not. I I, I got it specifically so I could use OpenWRT at the time. And it's also pretty Uh, old. So I only got it for that purpose. And it was supposedly like one of the better supported for that operating system. And it uh, that's the only reason I got it. And it was also like 50 bucks or less than that. So otherwise... I would have got something better had I known Ryan. Yeah, well, it's all very dependent on your home and how it's built and what materials it's built out of. For instance, before this house, I was in the log cabin. And the log cabin, of course, going between floors and things is very difficult for any router to handle. The new house that I have is pretty much your your basic, what do you call these walls? Drywall. Basic drywall (laughs) walls is what I was thinking of. And the signal is easy to penetrate through them, but it is three levels. So I have to still, that's why the mesh network came in handy because I could put a base station on each level and that allows the signal to really get through the entire home without having those dead spots. Question. So on those that you can have wires and so you've got stuff hardwired into, say, one that's off of your main station, how good is that signal as compared to if it was a standard Wi-Fi? It's incredibly solid when it comes to if you're hardwiring, let's say my main unit, for instance, is outside my office here. And on the second floor, I have another unit. Obviously, if I hardwire off of my main unit, I get the full speed of my internet. If I go upstairs and I hardwire into it because it has several ethernet ports on the back as well, I'm still getting 95% of the speed I get down here on the main one that's connected direct to my router. So it is a very, very strong connection. I like that. I really like that. So, Michael, what hardware quests have you been on? Well, now I'm actually looking into routers. But um, <laughs> yeah. so I've, this, this week I've been working on doing stuff with a NAS because I had I got a, I set up a NAS a while ago, but I never really put that much into it. And I decided to start like all the editing and all the video production and stuff. I need to have better backups. And I already have like multiple backups, but it wasn't very efficient. And the same thing with like game stuff or whatever. So I'm going to try, I'm using the NAS a lot more. It's, it's interesting because I was trying to find the manual for the particular NAS I have and I couldn't find it for some reason. Like there weren't any instructions and I had to find something that was relatively re- like somewhat around the same time frame. The, this particular product didn't have that right, that particular model on their website. So I had to find one based on the screen, like the, photos of the back of the NAS to make sure it was like a similar model. And then I used the manual for that one. That was an interesting You did the old stare and compare? Yes, I did do that. And yes, it did work. So thankfully it was close enough. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm good to go up and running and everything. So how do you find you used to do backups in a manual method, which is pretty much how I did backups for years. I would have spare drive in my computer. I'd have an external USB drive I'd plug into the back. And then move all of my data over. And then the world of NAS came in and I have a Synology NAS. I have a free NAS server. Uh, I also have another Dell server as well that I just have because I like hardware. And I told my wife we need more space to back up, but we really didn't. Nobody tell her. 
In any case, <laughs> uh, I have extra servers here, all basically running as NAS is backing up everything in the house from phones to computers um, in redundancy. And I just love, for instance, the Synology NAS where you can set it and absolutely forget it. it. Sounds like an infomercial, but it's just so true. You basically go through the couple of the prompts. It tells you, hey, are these the folders you want to back up? Yes. Here's the schedule. Yes. And you're done. Whereas others like FreeNAS are more powerful. There are more things you can do with it, but a lot more configuration and things involved, which I enjoy because it's a learning process. Which was the Netgear NAS that you have? Which Where did it fall? Well, I mean, it's in the situation where it's it's easier like than I expected it to be, but it's not like it's not a it's not like a drop in solution. It, I, I did have to learn how the interface worked and how to integrate it with my system and that kind of thing. But once I had it set up, it's fantastic. I love the being able to just stuff send stuff to the system. I, I don't like doing the manual. I like to do the manual saving and manual backup action because I want to know it was actually done, and I know that that's not necessary. But it's still, you know, I'm I'm gradually transition. Yes, I have trust you know, issues with technology. Issues. Yeah. It's a hardware thing. I'm working on it. Okay. Actually, so, Wendy, you nailed it. It is a control issue. <laughs> it's not a control issue. It's to make sure that it was done so that I guarantee the thing I did is there. You but tell our audience to trust their NAS. Never fails you. That's not true. Don't trust it. Always check. Your backups. <laughs> <laughs> Always check so, your backups. Uh, and I ch- and I do check my backups, but I I want to make sure that it's sent to the, the the NAS, so I do it manually. But also in the same sense, it's kind of a gradual sense from being completely manual and ridiculously weird structure to introducing a NAS that I can do manually, and then it still is conv- super convenient in comparison because it's always available on the network, and I can have it where I when I want it to. So that's awesome. And I will probably eventually transition to the whole automated system because, you know, after a while of doing this, I'll be more comfortable with it. And have having multiple backups is something everybody should do. So I, I think it's working out pretty well. Uh, I haven't had it that long. Well, it's been like a week or so. So we'll see. But so far, so good. Awesome. Ryan, what fun and crazy things have you been up to this last week? Last so, two weeks. Yeah, I've had a ton of fun recently setting up a gaming station for me and my son. So he has recently acquired this love for playing video games and of course naturally he wants to use a controller he's young he's only six years old so using the mouse and keyboard he can do it but the controller a little controller in his hand is just more his style and there's been so many great games that i want him to enjoy that i loved so much like gears of war but of course with the mature settings turned off so that everything's water instead of blood gushing out and uh halo more importantly (laughs) With also the mature settings uh, turned on off so that uh, he can enjoy it. But we, my wife went and found broken Xbox. And this is where this whole problem kicked off. And she thought, hey, I got this for $80, a new Xbox One, not a new one, an Xbox One for $80 that was broken. Want to know if you could fix it. And so I'm like, challenge accepted. And went and (laughs) took the device apart, was able to repair it quite easily. They're very easy to get into, and there's tons of instructions on teardowns for them if you ever do want to try your own repairs. In a lot of the cases, it's just a matter of getting in there and actually getting rid of all of the dust and things that get caked around the fans and cause these machines to basically overheat and stop powering on. So it was very easy clean out, put it back together. And now I have an Xbox One. 
And I'm like, hey, I want to play Halo with my son. Well, it became another addiction to where I bought another broken Xbox because it would have been cooler <laughs> if we had two Xboxes <laughs> and two monitors where we could sit there and game together instead of doing split screen. We could play any game online together. So we did that. And now we have this great gaming station set up. And, and the key is he gets rated by his teacher every day, whether he's green, yellow or red based on his behavior. And then he's got these words he has to learn. Uh, for the whole school year and everything else. And he's accomplished it. He's the fifth person and his only fifth person in his class to do all of his words already since we've done this. And he's been on green because he wants to come home and game. And he knows if he doesn't, he can't game. So it's been a really good educational boost. And he got to repair them with me. And in addition, you know, I love AMD. And these have the AMD Jaguar 8-core CPUs and AMD Radeon graphics inside of them. Really cool system. I also have the PS4 and PS3, which I like PS4's interface a lot more. I actually like the system a little better, but, you know, Halo. So there you go. Naturally. Yeah, Halo. So glad to know I'm not the only parent who uses video games as a way to get things done. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> whatever it takes. Yeah, whatever it takes to bribe them. It's that if you get your room clean, then you can have some Minecraft time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> nice. You're talking about how the Xbox... When you're trying to fix them, the main issues they had was being, you know, having bad cooling. So is there a solution for that? There is, but not so much for the Xbox, because if we get into our core story of the week, we're going to be talking about all of the different cooling solutions you have available for your PC. Now, I guess technically, as we get into this, you could make a custom loop system for your Xbox. And now you've given me ideas you should never have done because we could water cool an Xbox and that might be pretty fun. <laughs> I want to see that. Yeah, that, that might be a really good project there. But, you know, when you're looking at cooling solutions, if you're looking to build a computer in the future, we talked about the cereal aisle and, of course, Captain Crunch being the greatest. But CPU cooling solutions are very much like this. There are a thousand different brands. Some of the brands are from companies you've never heard of before. I know a lot of people just go on to Amazon or Newegg and sort by reviews. You also have the situation where you have to you have to match the cooling system with the type of CPU that you have. So using Intel, using AMD, different cooling solutions may not come with the brackets for different form factors. So there's a lot of things to take in consideration there. But really, for this section, I just want to talk about breaking down the types of cooling that you need to focus on. And there are really three main types. So you have air-cooled, which I think everybody's aware of. This is what's in the Xbox. It's Pretty a, standard. Yeah, it's a fan. It's a spinning fan, and you have heat sinks on it. It moves the heat from the heat sink to the fan and dissipates the heat that way. There's a bajillion different types, sizes, and form factors out there in this. But then you have this other one, which I'm seeing is becoming very popular because people want to say, I have a water-cooled solution, but they don't want to actually build it themselves because it's a little dangerous. And they are called basic closed loops or all-in-ones, AIOs. And basically, they do all the fittings and everything else for you. You know it's kind of factory set so that when you set it up, and put it in your machine, you have a lot less fear of there being a leakage problem. Now, these units do go out, though, so eventually that liquid inside is not just infinitely there. It slowly evaporates over time. So if you do get one of these solutions and you start having overheating problems, you have to change the entire unit. You can't go in there and fix it yourself. It's basically thrown. Then the final option is open loop, and these are the ones where you create it yourself. 
And if you have dreams of rebuying all the components in your machine and you have no experience with building one of these, <laughs> then stay away from them. Um, you know, it, it's one of those situations where an improper bend, because if you do hard tubing, for instance, you know, you have to do the bending with the hot air gun. And a lot of people don't do that properly. And it creates cracks or leaks or imperfections or they get cheap fittings. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong here, but this is considered the creme of the creme. The best of the best is if you get your custom loop, custom blocks, and custom radiators that you can get to build your own. So the question is, which one do you choose? So have any of these, now that we've covered all three, Michael, Wendy, any of these caught your attention? Were you aware of them? What are your thoughts, Wendy? Well, I'm aware of, of all of them, but water and technology has always scared me. So why I love the idea of a water-cooled system, and for me, if I was doing one, it would start out as a closed loop. Yeah, I'm still too nervous. I'm, I'm worried about, you know, over time, you know, things happen, things break down, and, you know, what happens if I miss something or just, you know, putting it together. So... I've stayed with the air-cooled system. I've spent a lot of time watching stuff on flows and fan configuration and all of that stuff that you get into. Man, this is a huge topic. Air for me, because my nerves say water and technology don't mix. <laughs> I love it. And that is the safest bet out of all three of these options. Michael, have you put any thought or done any research or wondered what would it be like to cool my system with water? So, yes, I actually have looked into this quite a bit. I used to watch videos about like just how to do it. I've seen like so many different setups for different custom build PCs and how they did like the, the custom loops and how everything. So I'm fully aware of all the different things about their existence, but not how to do how to, how to do them because uh, I've only looked at a few tutorials. It's mostly like looking at how they did it and seeing like the different configurations. And also sometimes they're like fun ones where someone made a, a Jay's two cents made one for Terry Crews, the old spice computer, which is awesome. <laughs> and uh, that kind of stuff. When I look at my own setup, I completely agree with Wendy and I'm too afraid to even mess with it. So the whole idea of water potentially messing up your entire system. I mean, I wouldn't even consider the open loop. The closed loop was like, yeah. maybe, but even if that breaks, I don't really know how to tell if it broke. With a fan, I can tell it's not running. So I, it's obvious I can figure that out. With the water systems, it's like, you have to hope it's working. And like, how can you, like, that's a good question, I guess. How can you tell if a closed loop system is broken? With the open loop, I guess you can see the water, but the closed loop, aren't those in like opaque systems? Is there even a way to tell like directly just by looking? Not with a lot of them. It really depends on the unit that you're getting. You know, a lot of it is dependent on the software that comes with it. Sometimes they have software that monitors cooling actively with these units. So if you could see that your CPU starts getting hotter and hotter and hotter, you can suspect something's going wrong with the unit. But it is an issue that you can't always tell if something's gone wrong with the unit other than you're starting to have issues with the temperatures of your CPU. If you're not somebody who monitors that or wants to monitor that type of thing, then you want to stay away from both the closed loop cooler and the open loop cooler because you're going to get in trouble potentially with both of them. Although with open loop, you do have a lot more options with clear tubing and even the water systems, which a lot of people put colors and things like that in with the pump. You can see the liquid actually moving through and things, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's not something else that's gone wrong with the unit. Whereas a fan, it's pretty easy to tell. It's either going to make a lot of noise or it's not going to spin. 
those are pretty much the two modes that it's going to be yeah. in when something's <laughs> the matter with. Quick. Actually, I was wondering. Um, I like the idea of doing the open. I'm still going to stick with fans because it's easier. But I'm also kind of curious how how much does airflow matter? Like, do you have to pay attention to it in like you know making sure that you do some tests to make sure the flow is in the proper way or whatever? Or is it just? I I feel like hardware is at a point where it's sim. It's like a lot easier to deal with this now. But maybe I'm just also oblivious more so I think than I the cases have been made to your point now where a lot of them are thinking about airflow for you a lot of cases yeah. come with the fans properly positioned where they should be already okay, you know cool. they come packaged with the case and in certain cases where people put their own fans in uh, there's already cutouts and holes that make the most sense for where you would put the fan in the first place so that it's not uh, going to cause you issues. Additionally, CPUs and motherboards have a lot more built-in protection now against situations where if you did, for instance, have that closed-loop cooler and let's say it failed and you didn't have anything monitoring, you would see your system shut down because it's hitting its throttle points or maybe slow down severely, which is what a lot more of what you might experience is just a lot of slowdown. Why is my computer so slow? You may start, in fact, I was watching a video this week of somebody who was trying to troubleshoot and they were posting videos of what's going wrong with my machine and people were leaving comments of what it could be and they were all software. And then somebody's like, what kind of cooler do you have? They had a closed loop cooler and the closed loop cooler had failed and the CPU was throttling itself because once it gets to a point where basically it's not able to dissipate the heat anymore, it's just going to slow itself down to lower the heat production. And so there's a lot more safety net in it. So it's not as scary from that aspect. But in closed loop system, for instance, can still leak. It's not impossible. To yeah. leak. It's just a lot more rare that you're going to see one of those leak than it is in an open loop, which has a lot more to do. And you've got to do maintenance on these as well. In the open loop, you're going to have to refill the water on a regular basis. And that gets a lot of people in trouble because you've got to go in there and actually fill up the water. But if you set up the system right and you take your time, it is something that it, I don't want to discourage people from ever doing it, but you have to understand the risk involved and you can actually build your loops and then take it out of the system and just test them on a regular basis right outside of the case so that you can make sure there's no leaks before you stick it in your case with the rest of your components. There are, there are some ways to make it a little bit more safe. But what's kind of a good news for most people is the CPU manufacturers, I think, kind of realized, hey, this is a really annoying thing for people to go out there and try to pick a fan. At least AMD did. And they said, why don't we just bundle a really good fan with our processor? And if you look at the Ryzen line, they come with that Wraith Prism cooler. And it's actually, it's a fan cooler, but it's actually fantastic. It is a great all-around cooler. Everyone from all walks of tech will tell you this is a good all-around cooler. Is it the best one out there? No, it certainly does a fantastic job and really changed the game in what comes packaged with a processor. Because generally, when you would open up that Intel and it would come with that cheap floppy fan with the stupid cheap plastic tabs that you push into the motherboard, you know, you really were not going to be doing anything fancy on your machine with that fan. It was not going to move air very fast at all. And now they're starting to bundle even Intel, these much better fans that are included with the CPUs themselves. 
And this is a pretty cool thing because it's not as much of a concern of having to go out there and buy a fan with your CPU. Yeah, well, that I, makes more sense to me. You're spending a whole lot of money on this powerful CPU. It should come with a fan that it can at least adequately cool that CPU. Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's kind of interesting because I, I, when you were talking about the difference between the old style of, of, of coolers with like, I had an Intel exactly that was just like little weird plastic stuff. And when I took out the cooler from the AMD, which is a Wraith cooler, I took it out and I was like, this is, this, this comes with the, this is awesome. This, it even looks like it's a, a heavy duty thing, even though it's not like, maybe it's not the best possible option you could get, but for, for a bundling and it's awesome, especially in the terms of in like multiple degrees, right? RGB <laughs> is available on the Wraith cooler too. So I mean, that's that just alone, fantastic. 100 more frames per second out of the box. Guaranteed. Yeah. Guaranteed. It doesn't matter what your monitor is, whatever hurts it. It's automatic, better frames and everything. Yeah. Here. Alrighty then. <laughs> That's what RGB <laughs> provides. Uh, there are other considerations for why you might want to choose one over another, though, that we haven't touched on. So a lot of people think, hey, you know, if you want to overclock your system, go with a water cool solution. If you're or a very heavy fan like a Noctua, which we'll get into. But there are other reasons why you may want to go with a water cool solution like noise factor. So noise is a huge problem for, for instance, podcasters. When we're having to record this episode, both Wendy and I have kids. Michael has pets. We're all worried about the outside noises that take place so that you don't get annoyed or distracted by them while you're listening to us. And computer fans spinning can be a huge distraction. They can be loud. They can be annoying. And as, as they age and wear down those bearings, even if the fan's not bad yet, start to make more and more noise. So that may be a consideration for people to take a look at the water cool. Yeah, definitely. The other factor there is efficiency and prolonging the life of your components. So if you have improper cooling, meaning you got that stock fan, maybe you have an older processor with your system, and maybe you're overclocking with the Wraith Prism on a heavy level, you're going to basically lose a lot of life out of your CPU because it's constantly maxing out with heat. And just like a car, sports cars, they have to constantly replace the parts in them because they more heat's generated. They wear out faster. It's no different with CPUs. If you're not providing proper cooling on them, then you're going to wear your system out. You're going to have uh, instability issues that are going to compound on top of that. So if you're some one of those individuals that want the most performance out of it, you're going to need to make sure that your cooling is matching what you're doing with your overclocking. And finally, there's a space problem. There are a lot of cases. Now, Michael's familiar with my case. It's completely open air. You can put anything you want. In fact, the case can hang on a wall, and that's to show off the build inside. But there are a lot of cases where they're not built to handle a big Noctua NHD 15 in it. Like, it's, you've seen my fan, Michael. It, it's massive. Huge. It yeah, looks it's like a, it's a radiator a, for a car. It does. It looks like it's, it, it actually... When I saw it, it didn't look like it was a real thing. Like it was like a joke thing that you put on just to kind of like pretend like it looked like a housing you put on the top of another cooler because it was just it was so gigantic. I didn't even think it was real. And it's also kind of funny because the case you have is an open air and it's really big for this purpose of having it. And that thing still is like, I don't know, a couple millimeters from the edge of the, the case. Yeah, it's it's still maxed out. The, the full capabilities of this case, it, the case has basically four posts that come out of it, and the posts are very long. They're probably nearly nine inches away, 
and then it has plexiglass so that you can see through and it pretty much takes up the whole height of that. So height's an issue, width's an issue and how your case is load, uh, laid out entirely can be a big problem for the cooling solution. So I can tell everybody all day long, hey, go and get this awesome Noctua cooler. But if you don't have room in your case for that and you still need a good cooling solution, that's where something like the closed loop would be your next best option if you're not someone who's wanting to take the risk with, say, getting a open loop system. I think you also left out one thing, though, is that there's there's only one negative thing I could find with that Noctua thing you had is it doesn't have RGB and it's just it doesn't get the frame per second. <laughs> it's true. Not only does it not have RGB. So, by the way, since we're talking about Noctua, it's a good time to bring up. This is my favorite fan. And in the tech world, this is where everybody parrots something and they're all right. The Noctua fan is just, it's an amazing feat of accomplishment because it used to be the case where water cooling and fan cooling were so far apart in performance. The heat dissipation and water cooling was so vastly superior to a fan that pretty much everybody who was wanting to do a good gaming system build was trying to find some type of, you know, Corsair H100 or some closed loop system to have water cooling in. But then Noctua came out with the NHD 15. In my case, I have the dual fan edition, so it's ridiculously bigger. And this creates a cooling situation that is on par with any of the water cooling solutions out there. The difference between them is a, f a few degrees at best. And I went and looked for some examples of some CPUs under load. And there was an Intel CPU. I was looking at some graphs. And it was under full load playing a uh, video game and it had a steady 59 degrees Celsius with the Noctua NHD 15 and the Corsair H100i, which is a popular all-in-one solution, water cooling solution, was at 53 degrees. So there's not a huge difference here in cooling, meaning you're not going to be getting 100 more frames per second because, you know, you've cooled it a few more degrees than the and fan. And neither of them have RGB, so it doesn't matter. That, that's true. RGB is everything. Um, but the Noctua does come in a very ugly kind of brown color. It has no RGB. It is not the most attractive looking thing out there by any stretch of the imagination. Now, the difference in price for them, $125 for the all-in-one Corsair H100, which is, you know, a popular choice on the Internet. Not saying it's a great choice for all-in-one solutions. There are so many out there and new kits dropping every day from multiple vendors. But the Noctua is about $89 and you have no risk of damaging your system at all. So if your case can fit it, I think the Noctua is a fantastic solution compared to an all-in-one because you just have no risk when it comes to leaking or issues like that. So is the all-in-one the closed loop? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they call it closed loop or all-in-one. Okay. You'll hear it, it referenced as. Also, I'd like to point out that the Noctua might be not be the prettiest thing, but I, it is kind of interesting in that sense because it kind of like this is a weird analogy and I get it, but it reminds me of like those ugly dogs that are so ugly they're cute. <laughs> it's like the pug of CPU coolers. <laughs> yeah. Does it say what the service area is on that thing? I mean, I know it's huge. It's absolutely massive, the service area on that Noctua. Yeah, we'd have to look it up and see. It's it's just I think it just you would just call it ludicrous size, honestly. Um, <laughs> like ludicrous. But that's where the power comes from and it's cooling power is because there is so much surface area to beat the heat that it's exactly keep what they're it doing at that low temperature. Yep, absolutely. So the radiator fins, you know, are super high and tall. 
Now, they do have different versions of the Noctua. They have some that are a little more low profile and things. You know, the other consideration is a lot of times these giant fans, especially if you don't have a case like mine that's open air, you're going to have a hard time getting to things like your memory or other components because the fan is so big, it's basically blocking your way to even get to your memory slots. So that's another consideration to consider if you have a smaller case uh, and an enclosed case, you may not want to put a giant fan in there because you're going to have to be taking it out every time you want to, you know, upgrade the memory or something on your machine. It is kind of obnoxious to have a cooler that big. Now, you can get around that if you plan ahead of time and again get the case. I knew I wanted to run this cooler, so I knew I needed a case that was going to be able to handle it. So I kind of planned for that ahead of time. But if you're not in that situation, that's again where an all-in-one solution maybe a really good choice for you because it takes a lot less surface area. You can even mount sometimes the radiators on the outside or back of cases, depending on the case. They may have holes for them made at the top, the sides, the back, um, where you don't even have it inside the machine. You're just running radiator to the tubes, and then it just got a, from the tube, just a little cover that goes over the top of the CPU that's very small, low profile, allows you to easily access everything else in your case. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's a good thing to keep in mind if you're building your own computer. Think about what cooling solution you want so you know which cases to look at to be in that line of... of Precisely. I think that's one of the reasons I really wanted to cover this because I noticed a lot of people who are going out there. In fact, a couple episodes ago, I talked about building a computer for someone and they had already purchased when they brought the parts over... They had already purchased a separate cooler, which wasn't made for AMD. So that was the first problem with it. And uh, the second problem is they didn't realize that the Ryzen CPU that they bought came with a fantastic cooler, which is what we ended up using. And so they kind of wasted their money. Um, now they try to get their money back and hopefully they did for that fan that they purchased. But definitely plan ahead because it's not something a lot of people think about. But it is one of the most important parts of maintaining your machine is having good airflow, a uh, good way of cooling your CPU out there. And the cool thing with open systems is you can actually create additional loops so you can cool other things on your machine, for instance, your GPU. So you can create an uh, with a closed loop system. I've not seen many at all, if they even exist, that allow you to connect to your CPU and have water cooled CPU and not have to have a separate unit for your GPU. If you're building your own system, you can create those loops, multiple loops off of one setup, and you can cool all the various parts of the motherboard, the CPU, and the GPU that you want out of one kit, which is pretty cool. Just remember, that's more places that you have to watch for leaks. <laughs> exactly. Um, as far as noise, too, I do want to kind of bust a little bit of a myth because I talked about noise being a factor in choosing a cooling solution, but these Water-cooled solutions also have fans. They have fans on the radiators themselves that helps dissipate the heat. In fact, I've seen people in the past who have brought me machines that weren't working because they decided they didn't want to hook up the fan to the, to the radiator. They just thought, well, I thought oh, that no. was just for extra cooling. No, that's, that's how it gets the heat away. So you've got to have the fans on there. So you've still got fans on your cooling solution on the radiator part specifically. Now, generally, they don't have to be as high RPM and they're not as noisy and loud as a, you know, some stock CPU fans or cheaper fans. Now, Noctua is a very quiet fan. For instance, you know, it is no more than two feet from my desk and it's probably less than that from my microphone, actually. The case is very high and you can't hear it at all. 
I'm doing podcasts or anything. So the Noctua's are pretty quiet fans. Uh, at the same time, you're probably going to have even quieter with the fans that come with a good all-in-one solution or if you have a custom solution, if you buy good fans with it. But it's not a guarantee what I'm getting at. If you get one of these water-cooled solutions, that you're not going to have a fan noise. So final recommendation for me is stick with a high-end fan for most people. Go with the Noctua. It is the best out there right now. And if that changes because sometimes companies decide they're just going to go cheap on their products or another company comes out with a better one. I think Noctua is the best I've ever tried in a fan and the one I recommend the most. Next, if you don't have experience in building machines, I think you're pretty safe if you get a good all-in-one solution. They are fantastic. A lot of them can create amazing performance and they're very easy to set up. Once you follow the instructions, you'll see you're going to attach the radiator to your case. You're going to basically just like you would with a fan, you're going to have some brackets you attach to your CPU, and that's it. You're going to connect the fan uh, power cord just like you would a regular CPU fan. You're going to be up and running. So that would be next. And then if you really want to take some risk, and I mean you're willing to take some risk, you're not going to get better cooling out there, period, than an open-loop system you create yourself if you spend the money, and it's going to cost you a lot. These, these open-loop systems can go for massive hundreds and hundreds of dollars by the time you're done building and buying all the components out there. So depending on the level that you're wanting to do, and what you're trying to do with your machine, it could be a ton of waste and overkill for you. But that is hopefully helps people understand the importance of picking the right cooling solution and gives you some ideas out there and what to look for when you're looking to build your next machine. The part about that that stuck with me the most is it doesn't matter whether you're going air, closed, or open loop. Make sure you get the best solution you possibly can for your setup because you're spending all of this money on other hardware components. Make sure you're cooling them properly so you're getting the best performance out of them and the longest life out of them that you possibly can. Nailed it. Perfect. Next up, we get to be schooled in the school of Wendy here on cameras. Wendy, as you know, is a professional photographer, has been around cameras for a very long time, has tons of experience in this area. But this is one of those subjects that, well, I guess it's another cereal aisle thing, right? There, are, <laughs> There is a bajillion different types of cameras and things. So, Wendy, break it down for us. People who want to get into photography, what are some things they need to get? Well, um I know we talked about this earlier about doing me like a beginner's guide to getting a camera. And the more I thought about it, it's just like building a, P a PC. There are so many different components and parts and things to consider that I was like, whoa, we need to, to break it down and go from a base level and build up. So the first part of this choosing a camera is the types of cameras. We've got three main kinds that you can find anymore which is the, the point and shoot, a DSLR, which stands for digital single lens reflex and a mirrorless. Now, I've always first, heard DSLR is that's the professional camera. That's all professionals use, period. If you want to be professional, you have to have a DSLR. Is that true? No, that's not true anymore. Love it. And we'll get into that when we get to as we're going through the different layers of camera types. Most people recognize the point and shoot and a point and shoot is anything from that now $20 camera that you can pick up to the most expensive point and shoot right now is right around $5,000. Whoa. Wow. What? For yes, a point they and can shoot? go for a point and shoot. 
but it is has it has an extremely nice built-in lens. So point and shoots have what we call as a fixed lens. You can't take it on and off. So it's always part of your camera. But this $5,000 camera, it's a Lycra, I believe, and it has an extremely nice lens and it has a very large sensor. So there is so many things to get into. Like I said, we're just going with with camera types and this point and shoot has a massive range. You can get anywhere from it doesn't do anything fancy to you can adjust all of the settings on it. Point and shoots are everywhere. I had no idea. I figured yeah. point and shoot was the joke of all professional photography. I, I had no idea they went up that high. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah that's, they can get expensive. Now I totally understand that the we don't know enough to really di- we don't have enough time to dive in. And this is something where I would have expected we we're just going to like, you know, toss it aside, you know, point and shoot and be done. And then now we're, we're like, what? This You can talk, <laughs> pro- you can probably talk to like in a whole episode on just this topic. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the next camera that you find widely would be the digital single lens reflex. Most people have seen the film ones and you can still get older versions. But if anybody is going to buy a new camera, it'll be digital. They've been around for years, the single lens effects. You can get an entry level starting around $400 and they can go much higher than that. (laughs) But what is that? What is one downside of them? And that is the noise that they make. So if you've ever looked inside one, there is this lens, a piece of glass that is showing you going up to your viewfinder to showing you what your camera is pointing at. And every time you take that picture, that lens has to come up, get out of the way so that your sensor or in the olden days, days the film can capture that data. So it's making noise. And even though it doesn't take very long, it does take extra time for that, that lens to get out of the way take the shot, come back down, and reset. So this is like when you're watching the paparazzi follow a celebrity around and all you hear is that sound all going nonstop, crazy, annoying sound that goes off. They are loud. Yes, they can be very loud, but you're in the place where you can have different lenses. And what's the good thing about different lenses is they change the way your images look. And we will get deeper into that in later versions of Camera Corner. But know that when you're when you're stuck with one lens, then there is no changing how close or far away you can get to some things because they have a limit. You can only get so close before it won't focus anymore. Right. And if you're or, if you're only if you only have one lens possible, I would assume fisheye would just be the universal choice. Yeah, the downside of <laughs> fisheye though is the way it distorts things, or you know, any wide angle. Well, that's lens you're that's the be special effect. With. We found the real estate yeah, agent distortion. of the group because real estate agents <laughs> love to use a fisheye lens to make a house room look like it's nine hundred foot square foot big, and then you get there <laughs> and you can barely fit do. yourself in the room. Yeah, absolutely. The one that is taking over now is the mirrorless, and here in the beginning. You had issues with if you were moving too fast, you'd get jerkiness in the image on the back of your camera, which was showing you what you were taking. But now as this technology has gotten better over the last few years, you're seeing things almost in exactly real time. You still have the ability to change lenses out and you can see the image you're going to take before you take it. And I think 
other than the noise factor, this is one of the things that has dreaming of a mirrorless camera. You can see what the lighting is going to look like. You can see exactly where your focus is going to be or what's not going to be in focus before you ever hit that shutter button. Now, as a complete noob, I have a mirrorless Sony A5100 that I adore for Destination Linux podcast we do. We use video. Prior to that, I was using all kinds of different Logitech variations of a webcam. And the picture is what most of us think of when you're doing a video conference with those webcams. It's okay. But when I switched to a mirrorless, the A5100, it was just insane, the difference in the picture quality. Oh, yeah. And I went mirrorless because I noticed a lot of streamers were using that type of camera. Now, a lot of the DSLRs I was finding in this range had a limit on the video portion. And so they would automatically shut off video after 30 minutes, whereas the mirrorless, apparently it's a licensed thing I've heard, but apparently a lot of Sony, or at least in the mirrorless line that they have, they don't have that limitation. But just the image you get out of it from a video standpoint is some of the most beautiful image I've ever seen come out of it. Yeah, and the Sonys, when you're coming to mirrorless, they are about the top of the line. They're definitely the most sought after in the mirrorless portion. I know that Canon and Nikon are putting out their own mirrorless versions, but Sony was on the forefront of this ground. They've been doing them for a lot longer. They're getting to the point where they're really perfecting how they work. And I know I would love to have a Sony myself. As far as video goes, yes, that is definitely an issue for these type of cameras. And some of it is the the film industry didn't want people buying cameras for stills and then doing a whole lot of long format video with them. They wanted them to buy dedicated video cameras. And that's where some of this regulation mumbo jumbo has gotten in the way uh. and made it so we have like my Nikon cameras can't go longer than 30 minutes without needing to be um you know, it's it shutting itself down. Aren't there some DSLRs that allow you to do that? Or is that just like a common thing with DSLRs? That's a common thing overall with DSLRs. You might be able to find some. I haven't looked too much into um, DSLR for video itself. But if you do, you're definitely going to be paying extra just to not have it shut down. At the yep. Is it, is it, it's interesting because if you have to pay extra for the DSLR and the price for the mirrorless is roughly around the same would it be it sounds like it'd be a better option just to go mirrorless yeah i think so and in general i think going mirrorless is a good way to go just because you have less moving parts in the system that are wearing and breaking down that have more places for dust to get into interesting it kind of sounds like uh the mirrorless is the next generation of cameras in that sense yeah, yeah, they're definitely overtaking the DSLR, especially in the professional community. And if you're doing anything that's around a lot of people or weddings, you know, you're in this quiet wedding situation. You don't want to be hearing the noise of that click. You want to just be out of the way, capturing the movements and not distracting people from what's going on. Right. I couldn't even hear their vows because the photographer kept taking <laughs> picture. One of the other differences between a DSLR and a mirrorless is size. So that mirror and the mechanics of it take up room inside the camera body. And with a mirrorless, you can have 
all of that great sensor power and reduce the size and weight of it because it's not having to hold that mechanism. Wow. So it's easier as you're going on hikes or you're going on vacation, wherever you are, you've got this smaller package that can still take a fantastic image. Yeah, because the mirrorless, the Sony A5100 I have, it looks like a point and shoot. In fact, if you were to bring it to a bunch of people like me who don't know anything about cameras, they'd all be like, oh, nice point and shoot. What do you have? But the reality is it has the detachable lenses and all of those things in it as well. It's very small and compact in comparison to a DSLRs that I've had in the past. Well, and there's a lot of places that you'll go to and they will make you pay to take images if you have a DSLR because they're like, oh, you're a professional. You have to pay us to take pictures at this such and such location. But if you walk in with a mirrorless because they're so small, they look more like the point and shoot. That may be changing now, but there's people that have taken, walked in with a really nice mirrorless camera, got some great pictures and not had to pay some astronomical fee because they're a quote-unquote photographer just because of what their camera looks like. I've heard of this issue. I've seen news articles out there where people are not allowed to bring their DSLRs into concerts and other venues, and for that exact same reason. But yeah, you could pretty much put a mirrorless right inside of a a backpack or a purse, and people would just think it's a point-and-shoot, may not even know it's there. Yeah, absolutely. So that gives you a general idea of what the three main types of cameras are. Next time, we'll go ahead and talk about the different sensor sizes. This is a whole nother thing to jump into. You guys won't believe what I've got for you. Awesome. I cannot wait. I'm getting schooled here in cameras, and I'm so excited because, Wendy, I have kept my cameras embarrassingly in automatic mode. No matter, I've, I've bought the fancy DSLRs. I have the mirrorless. They all stay in automatic mode. I'm hoping as the months progress on that I will eventually get brave enough to put it into another mode. (laughs) You'll never know unless you try it. There you go. So that's it. Our third episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the show. The show brings you your bi-weekly tech fix and your feedback has been incredible. Thank you so much for all the love in the comments and support for the new show. If you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on Destination Linux Network. Head to DestinationLinux.network and check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available there. There's so much to fill your brains with. And we have discourse forums. So if you want to talk about this episode, you want to ask more questions or want us to follow up on something, head to destinationlinks.network, go to the discourse forums, and we will be there to add it into the show or respond to you. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow.